Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen Oppenheimer at the IMAX, so the second half of our Barbenheimer double bill. We're joined by my brother Stephen. Hello. We've seen it all together because we're down in London, that's where the, the BFI IMAX is. We've seen it on the, the film prints, it's the only IMAX in the country that still projects on film. And it's the biggest screen in the country and Stephen, as soon as the tickets came out, <laughs> bought a bunch. So we've all got to go. Um, so we have. And it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it was worth the effort of getting here to see it. It's a completely different immersive and visual experience than you would get elsewhere. It's really worth the effort. Yeah. So um, the story is about uh, Robert Oppenheimer, who is famous, infamous as the guy who led the Manhattan Project, which led to the uh, Trinity atomic bomb test in uh, New Mexico, and subsequently the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that led to the end of Japanese involvement in World War II, shall we say, mm, and sort of putting surrender. it a bit diplomatic, yes, yeah, surrender. Um, there's obviously controversy over, was that a war crime? How guilty should America feel? That sort of thing. America has often uh, held that uh, it was the right thing to do, it was justified, but of course no atomic bombs have been dropped in anger since. But the film is called Oppenheimer. It's about him. It's about his perspective, uh, his history. It's a it's part biopic. It's part courtroom drama because after the bomb is dropped, questions are raised about about his. Well, in fact, during the um, the development of the bomb, questions are being raised about his communist past. Is he still a communist? His friends, things like that. These are all uh, dramatized in the film in uh, a series of narratives that cut back and forth on one another, people will be used to um, Christopher Nolan's uh, non-linear narratives, although this is not as complex or, or it's ne nested as he sometimes gets. It's reasonably straightforward and quite easy to follow, but still that's what he's doing. Um, so yeah, what did you think, Stephen? I think the multiple strands thing is an interesting thing. I didn't find it especially easy to follow. Okay. Um, I did have a hard time telling what happened before other things, but I don't think that bothered me particularly. Because there's a lot going on. You have him in his 20s. Mm -hmm. You have him during the war, during the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. Then there is, there's a sequence of events not long after the war, somewhere in 47, 48, 49. And then there's what's happening in the 50s. Um, with the and Robert Downey Jr. character. With the Robert Downey, but then the Robert Downey Jr. character is also there in the late forties. It's I didn't mind the jumping around. It was there was a lot going on. To be honest, I don't really know. I wasn't quite keeping up with a lot of it. Mm. Um, uh, I I didn't have any problems with that at mm -hmm. all. I, you know, I felt I followed it. Well, I mean, I could be tested and be wrong, but yeah, you know, yeah. kind of I didn't feel whilst watching it that there was something that I was missing. Uh, I, I, I thought that the film was so clever about putting forth story information that maybe only pays off later. So, for example, a simple thing, the introduction of Emily Blunt as his wife. You see her, you know, and you see her in the background, and then lots of things happen before you return to her, before you realize that that's his wife. I mean, initially I thought, is Emily Blunt playing a secretary or something? Yeah, like, mm -hmm. you recognize her, but she's not announced. She is just background, right? Um, so I think the film does that uh, quite a bit, but uh, I didn't find it any uh, any part of it difficult to follow. In a way, it's kind of 
quite chronological, yeah, in the sense that it begins with him as a student and, you know, where he needs to go study to get the kinds of information that he needs. And then it's true that, you know, characters are introduced and initially you think, who are they? I felt that with Florence Pugh, the Florence Pugh character, you know, but it doesn't take long before, you know, kind of you realize that it's like a passionate affair yeah. with a complicated woman and so on. Mm. I think the one thing that I minded about the film that you just made me think of, I hadn't really thought of it before, is that the film does assume that there was something wrong with being a communist in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Whereas in fact there wasn't. Mm -hmm. Right? Kind of, you know, it was a legal party, kind of people were doing legal things. I mean, you know, it was like uh, you had as much right to be in the communist party as you had to be a Republican or a Democrat. Right? It only became a problem kind of, you know, in the post-war period. Yeah. Uh, a problem that was taken up nationally that was something shameful or disgraceful or, you know, traitorous about, you know, being a communist. I mean, that was certainly not the case in the 1930s. And I think the film kind of assumes that there is something inherently wrong with it. I think it's an interesting... I think it feels like the film is... It's not present in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s when it's happening. You mm. feel like it exists in retrospect. It feels like a film that is adapted from a biography. Mm. The way that people talk a lot of the time is it doesn't feel like it's particularly naturalistic mm. in its dialogue. Which it is, by the way. We should say it is. it is adapted from a biography. So it feels like you're seeing events played out. I don't even know how much it's dramatised a lot of the time. Um... But it's got a sense of its own place in history. Like you say, mm. you have this sense of, it's not even a 1950s sense of communism not being a good thing. It's everything takes place with a sense of somebody in the 21st century writing about it and then having people act it out. It doesn't feel like, I don't actually feel like I'm in the 40s the way that I could. Do you think that sense of the film implicitly believing that communism is wrong and an evil is true? It's definitely true of the scenes later on that are set in the post-war period, looking back at the 30s and questioning people's involvement with the Communist Party or people associated with it. The scenes, though, that are set in the 30s, do you think those as well are implying there's something wrong with the com with communism? I do, because the film goes out of its way to tell you that Oppenheimer is supporting the Spanish Civil War you know, and, you know, the Communist Party is just the one that's helping you, that you have to channel money through because that's the way of helping them, right? So it is kind of already making excuses, yeah, mm. for him right from the beginning, which I don't think, I mean, I think, you know, another film, for example, might have uh, praised, you know, these people's uh, uh, humanity and courage and progressiveness and, mm. you know, uh, uh, I mean... I don't know what you mean. A film that was more confident in in maybe in its audience or certainly in itself would say you know this is how people thought at the time and we can represent that quite frankly quite honestly and then later when communism becomes the big threat to america we can then look back on it but the thing is communism in america still today especially today is such a boogeyman yes. thing that just the mention of the words is going to rile up feelings in the audience that sure. it may not be easy to divorce from, sure. you know what I mean? Which I'm, I'm not saying it's not a problem with the film, I think it's something the film could do and just have more confidence in its audience. I, I, I don't, don't get me wrong, I don't see it as a problem in the film. Mm. Actually, I think this is, a, for me, it's a film with very few problems. I was just trying to, to pick up from Stephen's point about the film not giving you the perspective of the characters in the moment that they're living in. 
that it does have like a, a perspective from our vantage point yeah. onto their past. I agree. Yeah. Which is, you know, because you could conceive of a film in which you're seeing the characters in the moment that they live in. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of something like Julia, the Fred Zinnemann film, yeah, with uh, Vanessa Redgrave playing a communist who's helping Jews in Vienna mm -hmm. escape. And you see all that fervor and idealism and so on, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and you can understand why somebody might be a communist, yeah? And, and be proud of it, mm -hmm. right? Whereas this film, I think, begins with the assumption that it's something somehow wrong, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's also really seen through Oppenheimer's eyes as well. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know the truth. I haven't read any biographies of him. What I know of him largely comes from this film, really. I, you know, I only knew about him before that he was a physicist who led Manhattan Project and a couple of the, the choice quotes he had. Um, so it may be true that he hedged as much as we see him hedge at the time, you know, against comment, well, I'll, I'll, I'll donate to the Spanish uh, loyalists, but I'll go through the Communist Party, I won't become a communist. It may well be very, very true. It feels like hedging, though, on the film's part, though, that it won't commit to a point of view. No. I don't know if that's the case. I think one of the two major points, and it might be the major point that the film makes, is that it's about somebody who thinks for themselves. Yeah. So he flirts with mm. ideologies. So there are things... In the end, what's, what he feels and thinks about things is primary. And yes. sometimes it crosses over with things that Communist Party members think or Communist dogma, and sometimes it crosses over with what, quote-unquote, the US thinks is worth doing. But it's really about somebody deciding for himself based on what he thinks is worth doing in his own sort of moral mm. centre. I agree, and, and, and that's why I think perhaps a flirt is the wrong term, right? Because he considers, mm -hmm. right? And I don't, I don't think there's a... To him, there's no contradiction between you know, not being a communist, but supporting the loyalist cause, yeah, kind of, he thought it through and that's kind of, you know, his decision, right, whereas flirting kind of implies that, you know, you're drawn or interested, but ultimately <laughs> kind of, you know, want to be either drawn in or reject, and I don't think there's any of that, it is about his thinking mm -hmm. process, yeah, kind of what he thinks is right, mm -hmm. so, and I like, I mean, I like that very much, I, I think, I think this beginning, to me, at least, gives the wrong impression of my view of the film. Yeah. Because actually, I think it's a truly great film. Yeah, and I think, you know, what I want to explore or argue with you is the ways in which it, it is or it isn't. Right. Yeah? I think it's a terrific film because it's a complex film. It's a morally complex film about maybe the great issue of our time, yeah, where, you know, kind of the morality of killing non-combatants right, and also the implications of that for a world order, right, mm -hmm. and yet kind of, you know, you, it becomes a story of a friendship or a rivalry, so, you know, the story begins in different ways, first it's a young scientist and how to learn something that doesn't exist, right, uh, then it becomes about the possibility of, yeah, building a, a a nuclear bomb, yeah, that again is something that doesn't exist, and how that's managed, and you know, how do you draw people in, and you know, how do you manage people's differences and get them to contribute, and yeah, how it takes place. I mean, I think that is a fascinating story of its own. Mm -hmm. It's the one with Matt Damon, right? Then, you know, there is the uh, story of him then uh, being judged and found wanting for the politics, right? And then the story turns again and becomes about 
the rivalry between Strauss and Oppenheimer. And I think that's managed beautifully, really, because, you know, it's not that you think that the film deviates or changes course, is that, you know, as you get each bit, all the rest makes sense in mm -hmm. the way it originally did and in a different way. And I think it's just kind of beautifully narrated, actually. The genre adapts and changes organically and it always makes sense. And I, I love the feeling you get and the music going under for such a long time helps with this, that you're watching a huge montage. You know, at very few points does the film go, here is a scene. We're going to start and end a scene. Things just move gradually and you'll go into, you know, it'll be like Oppenheimer talking about his past and he'll be talking, you know, well, that's how the film begins. He's talking about his, his youth and um, his studying physics. And there's essentially montage about it, but then a particular scene in the lab is extended. You know, it just, it lasts for a bit. And so like, you haven't kind of, you haven't just started a scene with a hard cut. You've moved into it gradually, but then it turns into something else. And, and then it moves out and becomes something else a little bit later. And the film is constantly doing this. It's a real, it's remarkable editing to make this all work God, so yeah. smoothly. And there's such a sense of pace to it. And people have really talked about three hours and all three hours are too long. And these films often, yeah, the kind of prestige films these days often have extensive running times because that feels like it's a part of, you know, it's selling its own importance, something you deserve to, to devote three hours to. But this feels that there are very few moments where I got bored or felt there was a lull, you know, one or two. But for the most part, it's got this incredible pace. I want to talk a little bit about the editing, you know, because as we were walking out of the screening room, and I thought this is a real uh, uh, only fans of this filmmaker would talk about this because you know that was a discussion. Wasn't the editing fantastic? I couldn't fault the you know one aspect of it, and I also realized this. There's this cut in the film, you know that moment where he goes to teach, but he's teaching something new and he has no students, there's only one student that shows up, mm -hmm. and then it cuts and you have like 10 students, right? And, I, and to me that kind of condenses, you know, what's great about the editing, because in a way it's, it's a cliche, it's some, something that's been used before, mm -hmm. but it's also an absolutely economical way through the editing of saying, this course now exists, it's gaining in popularity, yeah, he's gaining an influence, etc. And it's just from a cut, right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was kind of amazing. And the film is full of, of you know, similar and perhaps even better examples of the way that the editing is used. I thought it was tremendous. Yeah. And to the point where when that stops being what the film is doing, when it does go into a quote-unquote scene, that scene is important. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of... Um, the one way the test actually happens that's where it's interesting actually there's a line in the film which is easy to pass by but i really noticed it where um they're beginning the manhattan project and matt damon has has got him on board to lead it and he's talking about having four sites i forget where they were but they're, they're across um, the us and then he draws lines between them on he's always doing everything on a blackboard and he draws lines between lines between them and where they cross that's where Los Alamos is and that's where these all connect. But he says it's a point in space and time. And there's, there's no time involved there, right? It's a point in space. So why does he say time? Well, the space time is the great insight of Einstein and Einstein appears in this and so much of what quantum physics is based on derived from him. Um, but it's not just that, it's that I think the point at which the bomb is tested is the point in time. That's where kind of, original sin 
is condensed into that singularity. They talk about singularities as well, black holes, um, the point of greater and greater mass that light cannot escape from. That's kind of, that's what that becomes in the film. It's the point at which everything changes and he realises what you know, what they've unleashed, the powers of everything, which is a little bit of a cliche, but it's it's what everything has to be built around. It's what it's doing deliberately, I think. And that's that's when I realised like what that, what that line means. It's not just throwaway and it's not just glib. It's a point in space. In fact, the original sin thing goes to the apple at the start. That mm. is his original sin in a way. Mm. You know, I mean, what is an apple if not if not an indicator? Oh. I think this is a film in which nothing is accidental. Mm. Yeah. Everything is kind of thought through and kind of deployed and redeployed. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was very surprised to see as the film unfolds yeah, not only to see the story, but how it's peopled, right? Because, you know, I think one of the things about Nolan is who he now can get to be in his films. And it's, you know, it's everybody. Like, this is an all-star film, yeah, with kind of, you know, stars playing kind of little roles. Often, you know, just, uh, uh, I mean, we are talking earlier about Tommy Goldwyn, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know, I think he gets three lines or something, right? Mm. Like, you know, this huge television star, yeah, kind of willing to be here for these three lines and, and making a moment of it. So it's not stunt casting, like everybody is properly cast. Yeah, Tom Conti as, as uh, Einstein, um, to, to mention just one of many. So everybody's kind of like beautifully cast, but kind of, you, you know, you can get a cast like that for this film and also afford not to publicize it. Right? Because until you see the film, you don't know that all these people who do have marquee value of their own are in it. Right. So I think, you know, there are several things here. The reason why he can get a cast like that is because he can make a film like this. <laughs> mm. So did you see any faults with it, Stephen? To be honest, I don't really know what to make of it. Mm. I think it's so big and there's so much going on that I have to kind of stop myself shifting too far into disliking it while I'm watching it because there are things that are very there's it's a Christopher Nolan film and he can be really on the nose at points there are a lot of occasions in his films where I don't feel like things are dramatized I think it's very illustrative I think it's um, but that's one of those things that I don't want to rush to disliking it I think it's worth taking seriously because I think it's I think I agree with you that nothing's there by accident um so it's that's a really hard question to answer. I think I'm kind of interested to talk about it to figure out what it is mm. before <laughs> I can actually think about whether I like it or not. I think um, there are times during it where I don't, I, I dislike it because I do feel like I actually want a scene here and I want to feel like mm. you're generating stakes mm. in a, call it a traditional way. By the time we got to, it felt to me like the only scene that was a scene and probably because it's when the sound design and the music quietened down a lot was when you have whoever it is in the room talking about which sites are we going to drop the bomb on in Japan. Yeah. That felt like a scene from a film that wasn't really this film. Um, yeah. And maybe because it didn't also cut to other time periods, it didn't feel like it was part of the longer montage. But also while that was playing out, I thought, this is from another movie. And it's, I like this because it's settled for a second, but I do like that this is a movie that is just sort of tumbling over itself. I really like how it opened. I love jumping back and forth from mm. um, him 
into those sort of abstract, like incredibly expensive IMAX versions of like a Stan Brackage film, where it's giving you a sense of, we're going to jump to these images of light and movement mm. to give you a sense of how he uh, mm. how he sees things in his head, how he conceptualizes them. And then you see how that all of it comes together, like you say, in the Trinity test, mm. where it's all, two hours worth of theory and decades <laughs> of life in theory comes to this concrete point. In a way that I found very moving, mm -hmm. right? Because it's meant to be a moment of triumph, but it's also imbued with sadness. It kind of it brought tears to my eyes, actually, the way that was filmed, right? So, you know, this, this climax, this moment of triumph is also, yeah, a moment that one is meant to feel sad about. And I think this, to me, uh, gets to what's great about the film, that it's always morally complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you see that in the relationships, you see that in the relationships with the women, right? Uh, I think Florence Pugh is fantastic because she plays somebody who's clearly super intelligent, yeah, who's kind of uh, obviously like sexually involved with someone who is inaccessible. There's evidently an age difference, and there are moments that are highly sexualized. They're the moments, the only moments of nudity in the film, right? Where he's also nude, right? So you know, and kind of this feeling of I'll always be there for you, but then can't be there for you, right? Like it kind of it brings up his failings that are not necessarily of his doing, you know, that are not necessarily a judgment on him, though it has the effects on her. Right. I mean, you know, it's the, it, there's so much kind of to unpack there. Right. Like so many layers of of um, feeling. Right. It's almost like a kaleidoscope of feeling because you can't blame anyone. Yeah. But yet you understand the complexity of like mm -hmm. the whole relationship. That's true of the wife. That's true of the fellow scientists who, you know, then betray him. You know, but are they doing it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? Do they really feel like that? Does he for really forgive them or not? For, yeah. And, you know, those encounters raise all of those questions, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it might feel like it's illustrative rather than dramatic. But actually, I think, you know, as soon as you have that moral complexity, you have drama. Yeah, I think there is something to be said for it was that line in Tenet that came up a lot in reviews, which was um, try not to understand it, try to feel it. And I think there is something to that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a real challenge with his films to not to not feel like I think I need to listen to this and I do need to understand it. So it's a little bit disingenuous to tell me to just feel it. But I <laughs> did feel like in this case, I think it's useful to just let the whole thing. When I said at the beginning, um, I don't think I knew what was going on. I think I get the gist of it yeah. enough to follow what's happening. I just don't think I understand to like sentence by sentence what's actually happening, sure. what happened there. Well, that's but true. I'm with it the whole way through. Yeah, I think that's true of everybody. Mm. I mean, in fact, my own practice is really initially to just let the film wash over you and feel it. Yeah. Yeah. By like kind of you only really begin to make a different kind of sense of it by talking about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And and you know, and that is to me, you know, the value of talking about it, that you begin to piece the film intellectually or yeah. formally in a way that you don't when you're watching it. Or I don't. I mean you know, kind of you're either in it or you're watching it like <laughs> you know, outside it as a yeah. different kind of observer. And I think you are meant to go you know, but also I don't think that feeling is so removed from understanding. Mm -hmm. no. right? because Films operate on feeling. I think it's interesting that Christopher Nolan in particular felt the need in Tenet to put this line in, just trying to feel it, because, because fans of his, and I say this as I'm removed from them and I'm not, this is what I do all the time, 
will analyse the logic of how the world works and how this shot works and how, you know, is there a plot hole there, that sort of thing. And and you have to kind of encourage us, <laughs> me, to stop doing that and to let things wash a little bit more over you. Because it is about, like, no one, no one criticises Scorsese for his continuity errors. We let them go. No one, we're less forgiving of, of someone like Christopher Nolan for that, typically, I think. I think it's difficult. It's tricky, though, because he does build films that feel schematic. You yeah. can see how he's designed them like an architect. And I don't know whether or not it's always very successful. I don't know that you can build from absolute detailed logic to a point where it suddenly all melts into feeling. Um, I think I, this is an interesting mixture of the two. I mm -hmm. think it follows a kind of feeling logic through... I think it's one of his most successful films mm -hmm. because... You know, if you think of his previous films, what's the one with Leonardo DiCaprio and... Inception. Inception. If you think of Inception, if you think of um, Interstellar, mm -hmm. yeah, those are films that are very difficult to understand. Yeah, that you come out of it and you think, how do... Yeah, what does it mean? How does it fit together? Like, I really felt what, in those films, what I interpreted you saying about this film. And I think this is one of his clearest films. Yeah, like I, I felt I was able to follow it all the way through in a way that I wasn't quite in Interstellar or Inception, actually. Yeah. Or Tenet, for that matter. Yeah, like, yeah. like you're really struggling with, yeah, yeah what's the story? <laughs> right, like... <laughs> Particularly because you're given it's two hearings here. I think there are two primary hearings that you, that you come back to throughout the film. And what, what those hearings are actually about does not become clear for a very long time. Mm -hmm. and, and the questions that are being asked are relevant to you know, exactly what is being explained at the moment. But what they're overall talking about is not clear until later on. And, and the way that the film chooses to cut between them or cut from them to some flashback or something else is, is based on feeling. The feeling and the emotion and the tone and the general context is what gets us from, from this hearing to some related scene and back. It's not that it's explaining it in, in kind of pure logical plot terms. It's, it's cross-cutting based on tone and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. You see the film as an indictment of America. You can tell, I think, um, although as you were pointing out, Stephen, Nolan is half American, but he was brought up in England. You can tell the English um, kind of outsider look at America through it because you do feel, I at least feel, that uh, a pure American kind of red-blooded attitude would very much be excusing the bomb in, in quite clear terms, in a way that this film doesn't. It's, it's about the feeling of guilt and, and when characters say um, that it had to be done, or they, they don't even justify it in those terms so much. And actually the reason that Oppenheimer gives for, for going along with it or doing it, not, you know, going along is too weak, he does it, he creates it, is that he believes that if the bomb is dropped and people see it, it will put an end to all war. Not that it will show that we're the big I am and you can't fight us. The horror of it, I think, is the implication I get, is um, what will put an end to war. And he hopes that it can be a tool for peace. That way he learns far too late that, um, that that's not the case and everyone's going to want a bomb. <laughs> well, that's, not, that's not quite what I was referring to, though. I take that point. I mean, I was referring to, you know, the idea that, you know, here is this quasi-genius figure who's a patriot, who's, who devotes his whole life, 
you know, to making this contribution when his country calls on him to make it. Mm -hmm. And then the government tries to bury him. Sure. Whereas you have this slick operator that's played by Robert Downey Jr. who, you know, is, uh, you know, being offered one of the great posts of the donation has to give. Yeah, and who in fact is the agent, you know, set out to sink, yeah, this, you know, kind of very good, honest, principled person. There's also a really key moment, I think, which is around General Groves. General Groves, the Matt yes. Damon character, which is, it's the morning after, it's the day or a couple of days after the Trinity test. And the two of them are watching these, I think it's the two bombs being packed up and loaded yes. onto the back of trucks. Mm. And having worked together quite successfully up until then, what you see is the guy in the military talk to the scientist and basically say, oh, we've got it from here. Yeah. We know that it works. It's ours now. And Oppenheimer, I think, says in something fact, like, you'll keep me in the loop. And he says, I, I'll, I understand. I'll do my best. Yeah, in so far as I can. You've just watched the military industrial complex <laughs> lift from science and go, well, the gun works. We've got it. Yeah. And you, exactly. you leave the theoretician behind or you leave the scientist behind who actually understands the function of the machine and you give it to somebody that can wave it around. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think one of the minor characters, a soldier, does literally say, we'll take it on from here. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it's yeah. like that felt like, You've in a very your graceful way, in a very gentle way, it feels like, I think that's where there's definitely an indictment on. Because I think Chris Nolan thinks like um, a scientist, and I think he's got great respect for science and the theory. Sure. Um, and I think that felt like, in a very quiet way, this is really one of, this is the bigger betrayal in the film. Yes. Um, Although it's interesting that for someone who, who has massive respect for science, as he clearly does, and we've seen it in his previous films, that he has, you know, a kind of layman's understanding, but an enthusiastic layman, and, mm. and, he's, and he will consult with physicists and, you know, the whole thing about interstellar and uh, developing black hole imagery that genuinely advanced the science because no one had done it before. All that sort of thing he's very proud of. Um, it's interesting that this film at least nudges against the idea, I mean, it, it vocalises it, that there are some things we should not invent, you know? Mm. And it's not that, it's interesting, science is never at fault. It's not that, it's that we will unleash something that we can't be trusted with. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's not saying that, that science is the problem, but, but what it can unleash, there's no positivity to this, you know? Well, I mean, people are the problem as, mm -hmm. as usual, and he shows how they are, you know, they're kind of very, conflicting desires, different types of ambition. There's just like somebody misperceives a personal slight and their whole life becomes devoted to like screwing you. <laughs> so those are all, I mean, I think because the film brings out all these things, it's well, you know, one of the reasons I think it's so great. Yeah. I'm questioning myself actually, did it vocalize that thought or did I just think it? I think that when it comes up very early on, that a certain, I think, is it when they, he hears the story from a colleague that they've split the atom. He says, well, we're all thinking the same thing, a bomb. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is where you're exactly on the right point, which is that um, people are the problem. It's that you know that the first yeah. way we're going to think about using this is as a release of energy, yeah. as a bomb, rather than something productive, something yeah. we can use, it's and, something destructive. And one of the things that they do, which I think is implicitly about about ignoring that, is they... they if someone says bomb, someone talks over them and says gadget. That happens once or twice. And there's a thing, there's a poster on the wall about what are we going to do about the gadget or the long-term implications of the gadget. So it's talking about, you know, we know this is going to be a bomb, but we, we're still not calling it that. This, we're trying to keep a remove from it because we have to, we're working on this thing, mm. you know. 
There's another film to come out in the um, while the conversation about AI is happening. Well, AI is we've the got new... to a point where we've now developed this. The question is whether or not you should. It's you mentioned Jeff Goldblum to me midway through the film, and it is it, it, you always go back to the Jeff Goldblum Jurassic Park argument. Of, you didn't think about. You only thought about whether or not you could, not whether or not you should. Yeah. Although the reason I brought up Jeff Goldblum was because that's when he's chatting up Emily Blunt, um, and he takes her hand and he talks about um, about how all the atoms in it are mostly empty space, but the forces give us the illusion that we're solid, mm. and that reminded me of Jeff Goldblum taking Laura Dern's hand and talking about chaos theory and it's like I'm talking about science but really I'm saying I want to fuck you yeah. it's like what these two films have in common you know and it's why a not? it's a lovely moment yeah mm -hmm. and actually that makes me think again of how brilliant all the actors are you know because I think uh, uh, Killian Murphy is tremendous in it and so is Robert Downey Jr mm. but then you know we were talking about you know all the other uh, people <laughs> Some would you expect to be so idiosyncratic as to maybe, you know, leap out of the film in a, you know... Rami Malek, he's got close he's, to me. I was just about to say that. Yeah. You know, I mean, because he's, he's wonderful in it and he fits into the whole scheme of the film. And yet you'd expect him to be such an odd, you know, actor that he would leap out or disrupt mm. kind of the feel. And it doesn't. So I think that's a great credit to Nolan as well, that, you know, he manages all these, you know, such different types of actors and... It feels kind of like seamless here, really. And he I trust them, it feels like, because there's also a quality about his films which hasn't changed since Memento, or probably following as well, which is, it kind of feels like they're run and gun a lot of the time. It feels like he trusts his actors to take the role, and they'll be in the right place, and I'm sure he guides them with the direction, but they mm. don't feel over-directed. It does feel like a lot of the time there is a camera on someone's shoulder, and they're banging out scenes bit by bit. So you were mentioning earlier, Jose, you shared on Facebook this interview, this is what you're going to talk yeah. about, which is Killian Murphy and Christopher Nolan uh, in a DVD library. And it's not the Criterion thing. I in Paris. <laughs> yeah, in Paris. Oh, yeah. And they're, and they're looking through DVDs. And you're talking about Christopher Nolan was, was talking very interestingly about all these films. And he talks about collaboration with his actors and, and other and, and crew members. Yeah. Hugely. I was trying to make the point with that, that directors are always conscious that film is a collaborative art and they always take great care to credit the collaborators, their editors, cinematographers, costume designers. So Nolan does that throughout the film. Uh, in a way we, that we don't. In a way that critics don't, yeah. <laughs> um, but also, what was very interesting about uh, this uh, uh, video that, that we'll, we'll, we'll put on the blog is the one of the ways that he works through the, a feeling that he wants to convey in his film is he gets people to watch other films, mm. right? So one of the films that he got uh, his actors to watch was uh, Amadeus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, it is about kind of that rivalry, that conflict. There was another one, which I now can't remember, you know, but there were two films. So, and, and he does that with, you know, uh, his cinematographer, his set designer, mm. yeah, kind of, these are, but he's got a, a set of films that, you know, he wants to watch with people because mm. there are effects that he wants to kind of um, utilize. Mm. Yeah. I, I did see an interview where he said he didn't watch Doctor Strangelove specifically because he didn't want to copy it, basically. That's like right. You would end up doing that. Though in this video he says, I didn't want to copy it, and yet that whole Senate sequence, <laughs> yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Yeah. It's funny, I, I, the, the interview with him that I happened to watch was not as um, intelligent 
as the one you watched, it was this autocomplete interview with him and Robert Downey Jr., which is done for a bit more showbiz and laughs and stuff. You put into Google, you know, Christopher Nolan, then see what the questions people ask are. One of the questions was, does Christopher Nolan storyboard? And he said um, he will storyboard significant sequences, things that really need it, but for the most part, no. And I think that, that goes to what you were saying about working, you know, the idea of the camera on the shoulder, let's just see what happens. Like, you'll have a setup, but you'll work with the actors, you will, you will, you will play through a scene and find uh, out uh, what the scene is. It's very much about piecing together small moments of information. Mm. You don't, there's no long, uh, there are no long, uh, complicated uh, sequences takes. Right, or, or single takes in particular. It's, it's, it's single pieces of information yeah. passed out to you bit by bit by bit. On this person, for this moment, for this line. On this moment where a fold is taken out of a cupboard and then put on a table. But you see the lighting yes. on, you know, especially uh, Florence Pugh, you know, who's, I'm just riveted by in this film, because she looks like a Tamara the Lempica painting, and yeah, like, <laughs> you know, the hairstyle, the cheekbones, the way that she's lit, right? She looks so period. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, and to convey that look or to construct that image, you need to be precise. You need yeah. to be in exactly that mark, right? So... Um, and that's not a criticism, that's just a, a kind of a, an expression of what I take his style to be, that it is, you know, very precise. I think it also goes back to what we were talking about just before we started recording, which is the budget for this is $100 million. And I think part of what, what that's paying for is impeccable production design so yes. that you can move around inside it with a certain amount of ease. This isn't like an old studio movie where we're going to design all of our shots very precisely ahead of time. So we only, we shoot everything we've got and we shoot it very perfectly. This is, I feel like they've got Los Alamos built yeah. and they can kind of move around within it sure. with a certain level of ease because everything is as real as it could possibly look. Yeah, though I also want to indicate, and it's a ridiculous thing to say, but I think a hundred million for a film like this is cheap. Mm. Yeah, you know, you hear about the budgets for like some of the Avengers films, and what are they like? You know, Money laundering is what they are. I mean, that's that's why <laughs> yeah. Netflix, that's why Netflix and, and, and the like are so resistant to revealing um, uh, viewing figures, subscription figures, and so on, because the amount of money that goes into those is is not. It's being taken. It's being mm. kept. You know. Well. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it is nothing. It's, this must have cost. I mean, I guess you're thinking about marketing as well, but this has got to be a third to a quarter of what the Indiana Jones film yes, cost. Exactly. Um, or you know, you hear figures for the Flash, and that was something like 250 million or mm -hmm. something, right? So you know, uh, where's the money going? Where's the money going? Okay. <laughs> You're trying, you're building another argument. I'm trying to argue that, you know, this is a relatively low budget to achieve yeah. what the film does, right? Indiana uh, Jones 5, $295 million budget. That's go. ridiculous. Whoa. Unless it's worth it. You have to see the movie. Yes, true, I've not seen it. So this was $100 million and you feel it's money absolutely well spent, and I'm sure they didn't pay the cast their going rate. I'm sure Matt Damon didn't make what, you know, mm -hmm. what uh, what he normally makes to be in this film. Uh, it's it's an incredible all-star cast, all, you know, incredibly good. Um, are there sequences that, you know, you found particularly remarkable or problematic? Um, I felt bad for Florence Pugh as an actor ah. because I don't, it's not that her character is is not very good. I mean, I agree with you when you say that she's interesting and complex and brings something really, really kind of spicy to the film that would probably be lacking otherwise. 
Um, but within a minute or so of meeting her, she's got her top off in a sex scene. Second time we see her again, which turns into a sex scene that happens in front of all those guys in the hearing. And, you know, obviously, obviously a dream sequence type of, you know, imagined thing. But I felt really bad for her as an actress that that's what has been asked of her. It, and I didn't think it was justified enough that she should be topless for it, particularly, or shown. I did. I didn't... I found I didn't, it justified. I didn't feel <laughs> it justified. I found it justified because it brings in that whole sexual dimension to Oppenheimer. Yeah, without those sequences, you know, you don't have it. And I thought it was kind of an interesting concession or an attempt not to seem like a sexist pig anyway about it, that he is also made to take his clothes off, right? But and he's not revealed nearly as much as she is, and well, that's what I found unjustified. I think in male terms he is, in the sense that, you know, you he's filmed so that all of this is visible, right? It's not just... You should describe what you're talking about, it's a podcast. Yeah, of course, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get his chest, his, you know, at the side of his bum and his thighs. Yeah, so we see him with his legs crossed. Yeah, So he's hiding his modesty. But we see the, the I think, leg. I think in male, t you know, I, I think in film terms, that is the equivalent of her being topless. After all, you know, you don't see her fully naked either. You basically, you know, she is topless. No, you don't. But I, I yeah. there are ways to film it. I think, you, I think when you get your tits out, to put it crudely, um, you're kind of, you're competing with your body for, you, for attention. No, you can be competing or you can be conveying something in which that nudity is necessary. I think the film is conveying something in which that nudity is necessary. You know, they're talking after clearly mm -hmm. having sex. Yeah, of course. Right? Uh, so um, I think, and, and it's an illicit affair, it's dangerous, it's mm. the, you know, kind of all of those things. It's dangerous enough so that it costs her her life, right? So I, I think the a way of generating that desire, passion, sex, without literally showing them in bed doing it, is to have those scenes. I think it's also interesting when you get to... The two of them are naked together, twice. And then, as you say, there's that really strange, really great moment where he's topless, or he's naked in front of all the guys who are effectively interrogating him. And then she appears, but she is... Her eyeline is about it's about it's about her and his wife. Mm -hmm. So it does it re it plays with that in a really interesting way. It didn't feel like she's there naked being exposed to this interrogation. It mm -hmm. felt like no, I felt more for her as an actor in that. that yes, like, yeah, that's what I felt like her in front of a room of actors, and she's just that's what I felt there. But I think you're just slightly misunderstanding me, Jose, about the sex scenes. It's not that I feel the sex scenes are unjustified or that they shouldn't be shown mm -hmm. having sex. It's that there are ways of shooting it that I think. I know, it, I, I get you, but I think we're disagreeing because, you know, I think there's a way, and it's constantly evident, where you see the filmmaker's lasciviousness, mm -hmm, mm. right, in relation to showing a woman topless or to showing her naked, mm. right, your mental ogle at her nakedness. This, you know, it was a wide shot, it was distance, you never felt that the camera was ogling at her tits. No, right? no, no, no. So, you know, I, and it conveys all these other things. I thought it was necessary. You know, and uh, from my understanding, Florence Pugh is somebody who would have absolutely said no if, if right. she felt it was otherwise. No, She's sure. been very vocal about that in the past. So, you know, I, I yeah, I didn't have, okay. I mean, I felt the power of those scenes, but, you know, I didn't feel that they were exploitative. Fair enough. No, I agree. I think that is, 
to put the camera closer to say basically to cut out her nipples because that's the thing that really makes you realize oh this person is absolutely fully topless on screen mm. it would read entirely differently it wouldn't feel like you really are in a room with two I don't necessarily mean a, a close up I mean a different angle or or yeah, a, a sheet or clothing. I'm not trying to be a prude here. I'm just saying I think it detracted from those scenes mm. um, that 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 could have been equally expressive or even more expressive had they been maybe done slightly differently. That's a, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it's a discussion that's bigger than the film though, which is about how nudity is done in yeah. films in general and how sex is done in films in general because they so stand out when people make choices like that. When you think of the is that argument scene in Shortcuts. Between, I think it's Matthew Modine, isn't it? Mm. Like to offer a connection and Julianne Moore, and she's got this top on, and then she is completely naked from the waist down, and it's an argument between mm. a married couple. Mm. And you cannot help but it's you have this. It challenges you as the viewer in that way that you notice somebody who's naked, and you do not see women that naked in mainstream films. Mm. But yes. you then have to deal with the fact that you're providing the problem because you're not used to this and the fact that it's been done and it is done so tastefully means that you really feel the scale of these two people having an argument mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I don't know whether or not it's I don't know if there's a way that you could do that in this instance where it would be quote-unquote more tasteful um, I mean personally I think it's as tasteful as it can be I, yeah. I also think we're living in a different time mm -hmm. you know you watch Netflix and you're seeing tons of nudity, men and women, all completely naked from top to bottom. Are you? Right. Yes. What are you watching? Well, yeah, we're watching. <laughs> well, White Lotus, you know, oh, yeah, to mention true. one, right? Uh, so, you know, I think to see a woman topless in a film also means something very different than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think kind of, you know, uh, uh, Netflix or whatever you call that type of television, you know, has absolutely kind of resituated how we think about these things and to me kind of you know this was i mean i i was thinking of what the scene was trying to convey and i didn't think it was exploitative and mm -hmm. it's something that you're used to watching and actually you're used to judging often very negatively in other things right um because you know so many of the discussions in shows like white lotus for example is oh is that penis real or is it a prosthesis and you know kind of you know and the whole top, the whole discussion becomes about the penis like you were saying about julianne moore i don't think that's the case in this film mm -hmm. okay well I've, I've said what i've said so you know um i want to think generally about the use of imax footage we've seen oh, this God, in the yes. full on full frame largest screen in the country imax the way in which nolan is using imax now has developed to the point where he is using it for he's using it for dialogue scenes and it must be very very good ADR that's being used here because the thing about uh, IMAX historically has been you can't use it for dialogue the cameras are loud mm. um, you use it for spectacle you use it for other things and here it's being used for dialogue not like extensive dialogue but people are talking during it and you know I'm starting to pay attention to it and the synchronization between the faces moving and the dialogue is perfect like it, it sounds like it's been recorded on day and i have no idea whether they've developed it to the point where it is quiet enough to record dialogue with now but that's how he appears to be using it um well, and that's I mean, you can't conceive of a feature film where you know the dialogue becomes a problem i mean the, you know these films have dialogue so yeah but the point is is have they have they gone let's record this and uh, let, let's let's shoot this and record Luke's dialogue afterwards that plays on top. But the thing is, if they've done that, they've done it so impeccably well. Mm. I just don't have the answer to it, right? It's interesting. 
Um, but that's how he's using it now. So IMAX footage has become here. It's it, he's he's used it for spectacle, as everyone who's ever used IMAX has. And IMAX have their own spectacle, you know, mm. short films that they show. Um, and he's got closer and closer and closer to the person to the point where here he's using it for dialogue. He's using it as portraiture. Mm. He's using it in close-up. Um, and the close-up especially makes it makes makes what you're seeing so vibrant and crisp. And you were talking about the details you can see oh, of skin and so on. I just think it's beautiful. And, it, you know, I was, I was saying earlier that it's cinema, as I remembered it in my youth, yeah, with the huge screens and, you know, you're immersed in, in the crowd and the responses, you know. But what I noticed this time, it's like, there's a, there's a kind of, um, and I don't know if this is true or if I'm just thinking, you know, but I was, those first shots with Cillian, Cillian Murphy, you know, where you're actually like almost immersed in his face, Right, and you're seeing his eyelashes, and you're seeing his stubby fingernails, and his freckles, and so on. And yet, it has a softness that you don't get in digital. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I just thought it was, you know, it, it was beautiful. It was just visually beautiful to look at. And then, of course, the immersiveness of it was just thrilling. I thought, you know, it makes seventy millimeter disappoint you. Yes, because <laughs> when it goes to IMAX, it is. It's exactly how he describes it. It's just the best yeah. image you can possibly mm -hmm. get. Yeah. But here's the other thing, is I also kind of thought that it is used so much and so much to shoot quote-unquote normal shots, kind of basic shots, establishing shots. Like, for instance, when you walk to, uh, down the sort of bank to see Einstein at the pond, mm. the opening shot of that is in IMAX. But it's not, it doesn't stand out the way that those shots tend to do. Um, I wonder whether it, it becomes so normalised that things become a little less impressive about it here. He cuts back and forth to it so much. That I found it hugely impressive. Yeah, I mean, I love looking at Florence Pugh and at Emily Blunt, right? And those, those, some of those close-ups were almost painterly, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, you're just kind of immersed in in those images in a way that kind of recalls almost like '30s or '40s films with like the shadows and so on, but with like this depth of texture, mm -hmm. yeah, because you're actually having color and not just shades of black or gray or white yeah mm. i thought it was beautiful i suppose i can't imagine it being better actually i suppose i, I mean i agree it's absolutely it's beautiful but i suppose what i'm thinking is when we talk about for instance the sound dropping out making a scene more intense because we've had sound so intensely throughout so much of the film until this point it intensifies that particular scene i wonder whether slightly more restricted use of IMAX specifically here would have intensified those moments more. I mean, to be honest, I don't know because I think maybe I wasn't paying attention. I mean, the scenes that I'm describing are the ones that really stood out because yeah. you think, my God, isn't IMAX beautiful? There might very well have been shots which were not shot with IMAX mm -hmm. film and I just wasn't paying attention. I don't know. Well, the, the film switches back and forth very, very liberally and you can always tell by looking at the aspect ratio, but you know, you're not necessarily like, I'm not saying that's like, you should be doing that. You should be just in the film, letting it, you know, kind of um, direct your attention wherever. But it was something I was always conscious of how quickly, sometimes it's IMAX to 70 mil to IMAX to 70 mil over a couple of cuts, you know, mm. it's sometimes quite rapid. Um, but I don't know, it's just something that was kind of on my mind. Like some of this, I thought, wow, this, this, <laughs> this shot of a pond is, so 
meaningless because we're just getting to the scene that's going to follow that I wish you'd kind of restrict it. It wasn't worth it right now, you know? Kind of, I thought. I feel I wanted the whole thing to be an IMAX. Well, <laughs> I just yeah. think it's too good. I just feel like, why don't we just do all of it in this? Uh, it's so great. It's such a brilliant thing to see the size of that image and the unbelievable clarity of it. I think it wouldn't lose how special it is mm. to have had the whole film be an IMAX. I mean, like, there's, there'll be reasons why you didn't do it. Well, I think the um, only reason. But I did feel like I just want more. The only reason not to do it is economics. That's it. Probably. Or, or probably dialogue issues. If I'm right that they haven't managed to make IMAX shooting quiet enough to shoot dialogue with, hmm. they may well have done it otherwise. Yeah. Um, um, It'll happen yeah. one day. I wouldn't be surprised if it got to a point where he did an entire film in IMAX and I'm fucking there for it. It's, no, it's well, he's, such a... he's typically the one who's leading those. Mm -hmm. those you, know, what, you were saying that he had IMAX. Uh, had you Kodak. had black and white IMAX in this, which had not been, that wasn't an existing medium. So That's Kodak right. developed black and white. Presumably black and white 70 mil, 65 mil was a thing because there's a lot of black and white mm. 65 black, mil. The black and white is one of the really clever things that uh, only really makes sense, well, to me anyway, towards the end of the film, which is that the black and white is whenever it's Strauss's point of view yep. on the action, right? So it's not extraneous. It's kind of like an aesthetic choice to, to, to suit not just a character, but a point of view, because you often see the character, but appearing yeah, from Oppenheimer's story in color, mm. right? So it's, it's color to indicate a perspective, mm -hmm. yeah, which I thought was brilliant. The texture of it's different as well as obviously the saturation, because it's this really kind of, it's like 16 mil, 65 mil it's got this graininess to it that you don't tend to see in films that i've seen in recent years that are shot on 65 mil you don't see that kind of grain and that kind of the way that the highlights bloom mm. it's actually a kind of grungy 65 mil all of those scenes around that banquet table with the the that funny little thing with the flower pot in the middle um it's got this kind of grainy quality you really notice the imax black and white compared to the 65 mil because it suddenly gets pin sharp mm. i really like that quality that the 65 mil black and white has that it, it feels like it's more rough in its texture than the mm. 65 mil color does but the black and white is also very deliberate because all those close-up of robert downey jr's face it's almost like there are no blacks in it like there's yeah it's so white yeah kind of you know, which is an unusual way of, of filming. And respect to a film that has that many people with glasses on and that like just lets them have reflections in uh, them and it's like there's something no, but it's really something to give it that level of naturalism mm -hmm. that it's like, well, these things exist. People wear glasses and you mm -hmm. can see other people's reflections in them and I like that. Yeah. So um a a good question to ask you is what do you think the film loses? How much will it lose in being seen not on an IMAX screen? But on let's say a very, very good screen that is just not showing the full IMAX version. I think um, it'll lose like 80%. <laughs> no, because I think some of the things that you were saying, Stephen, about maybe, you know, not quite getting the story and so on. I mean, imagine that on a smaller screen, because I think part of the reason why I felt I was keeping up with the story is because you're so immersed in it. You have nowhere else to look. Yep. Like, you know, kind of you are in the story or you close your eyes, but you can't look sideways or like, you know, the the... The screen is so big, you know, and the image is so dense, mm. right? That it just keeps you active and looking and immersed and so on. I think, you know, if I were to watch it on a television set, I think this film would take me like 12 hours to watch and I'd be bored <laughs> and I wouldn't know what's going on. Yeah, you wouldn't be following track it. And, 
<laughs> yeah. So, so to me, like it's you know it's really important, uh, or 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 the experience that I had is not an experience that could be reproduced by watching it on a different or smaller screen by watching it on non IMAX. I think it will lose the power of the portraiture for the most part. That's the main thing I think I would miss mm. not seeing it because because the screen is shaped for a human face at this aspect ratio mm. and then being able to film it at such high effectively resolution that it's film um, and so close up and seeing all these details and the, you know it's used so deliberately right at the end when we're just on Oppenheimer's face looking at everything that his life has led to and what he's done and it, it's that is not going to look the same mm. and feel the same um, in a different Mm. Aspiration in a different format. That's a really special. In fact, it reminds, it reminds me of um, what was the Barry Jenkins film? Uh, One Life. No, if Bill Street could talk. If Bill Street could talk, that's the portraiture in that really mm. struck me as well, um, because it's it's just the way. I mean, it's. I think it's much more. There's something more humane about it in Barry Jenkins' work. Um, you, know, you you feel a kind of softness and and depth to the characters that is not quite what I'm getting from it here. There's more. There's, I suppose there's an intensity to it and the intensity of feeling of, you know, what have I done and so on and so forth that's implicit is very strong here. It's, but here it's, you know, the thing is, in, 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 if, if Beale Street could talk, those people were beautiful, young, smooth, vibe, you know, and here it's wrinkles. It's like the life that I've lived is on my face. Every spot in Matt Damon's face. Yeah. It's like come and see. The way that you look at that kid's face over the course of come and see and as the war takes its toll on his face, the last shot mm. of this, that shot on... Oppenheimer's face it, it feels like looking at the kid's face at the end of come and see and it's everything that's happened is right there in his skin yeah I also like the use even though I thought oh this could be quite cheesy of um the, sh the background shaking I think it's done mm. in camera it's not like a visual effect the background shakes when and it's and it's during a uh, you know, portraiture close-up on um on Oppenheimer and it's more than once um that the intensity of what he's feeling um, kind of breaks into the image essentially, mm. and and it it focuses you more on him. He's the one thing in the in the scene that's not moving, but the rest the background behind him is shaking. But you know, along with the sound design as well, that's um, intensifying a, a rumble and so on. You get this very intense confrontational face. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So Stephen, what do you think would be lost? I mean, I think I agree with you. I think where I was starting to where I found that I wasn't quite, I wasn't entirely with the film. What that, what I think I mean by that is that I'm not listening to what they're saying. Wow. Um, but I was watching it the yeah. whole time, and I'm with the music, and I'm with the general sense of things. I think I just lose the definition in what they're saying, but I'm watching the whole thing. I think if and when I come to watch it at home, I will probably find that oh, now I can understand what sure. is actually happening piece by piece, dramatically, I understand what this person just said. Mm. But then I think I'd want to go back and watch it at the IMAX again, mm. because now, okay, I understand the story. I, I, in so far <laughs> as I understand what the dialogue is, mm. but I want to go back and see it there, because like you say, I'm looking at this amazing image, which it's... I can't get the scale of mm. at home. And I also can't get the scale of the sound mm. at home, which is, it's a really good, for someone that's the been criticised is... a lot for say sound mixes, well, I just this, to... was, this really worked. Uh, that's why I wanted to ask you just about the sound mix. Is this talk of the dialogue a continuation of the criticism that Nolan's had of the 
sound mix in Tenet in Interstellar where people complain, I just can't, I don't, I don't understand the words. I think it is, but I don't mind. Mm. I had more of a problem with it in Tenet, but it might just be a case that that was, he's pushing the boat out every time and I think it takes you a minute to catch up. I think in this one, I think you have less, I think it's a less dense sound design in terms of um, SFX around people's dialogue. There's a lot, because Tenet's an action movie. Mm. There's a lot of people moving around and walking and cars and this kind of thing. This wasn't quite so much. This felt like there's dialogue and there's music. Mm. Um, but there, there was, was still a really lot where I don't really understand what people the bomb, yeah. right? You know, that were used so dramatically, I think. Um, Actually, I, I wanted to think, you mentioned before the, um, the Stan Brakhage-esque mm. um, abstract uh, style imagery that's, that's all done in IMAX. And I think what's great about that is not just that it's worth it for its own sake, it looks interesting and beautiful for its own sake, these sparks and things like this that break into uh, Oppenheimer's kind of mind and just for a split second we see them and then we return to wherever we are and there's, there's a sound effect associated with it that shocks us and whatever. Um, but it's that also they, they start to become, you know, as things, as, as the way this film works is nothing's explained right at the start and we learn what things are later on it, in terms of like plot and story and character. Um, that's also true of these images. They are abstract at the start, and we have a vague idea, particularly right at the start when it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sort of wait 20 minutes to show you the bomb. We're going to start off with some bomb imagery right away, right? Here's some flames. Fantastic. And then we get into the film. Um, but it's things like when he's explaining certain physical concepts, like, like that scene, in fact, with um, Emily Blunt, where he's talking about uh, how how electrons work and how the space in the atom works. We get imagery that shows this, and it's and it's imagery that is at the same time impressive and interesting for its own sake, but it's also actually explaining the thing. Right? And it, and he and he does that. He starts to he starts to use these images. We start to understand what they what they're representing in 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 physics terms as the film goes on. And I also really like the the use of those two bowls. It's a bowl and a glass. Mm. And it's as they drop marbles into these things, that shows you how much uranium and plutonium, I think it was, mm. that they've enriched for the for the various bombs that they're trying to... And again, that's a really, really nice, simple way of explaining to the audience, oh, I know exactly what's happening here. Once this reaches the top, we've got enough for a bomb and we can just track it as the film goes on. And that's something that Nolan's actually very good at. In, in, in Interstellar, he did the thing explaining wormholes with the folded over piece of paper. And, you know, the, the question that everyone had is, why is an asteroid explaining that while they're already in space? You know, but it's for the audience and it makes sense and it makes it very clear how this is working. With Tenet, on the podcast we did about Tenet, um, I, I was effusive about how that red and blue room is used to explain, to to show you how time reverses because it, it, analog, it analogizes it, if that's a word in spatial terms they mm. go in one side and walk the other way out the other and they've gone backwards um he's very good at that i think and that's got that goes to his kind of his his um his sort of layman scientist enthusiast mm. mind mm. what's good about it in this case though is that you're being presented with somebody who's having visions of something he's intuited an idea and he sees it as an image and and he has to do the work to make the science make sense to him so that he can then physicalize it. Mm. I think that's what's happening at the beginning is it's like he can't sleep because mm. he's having these images of something. Yeah. It's like he's learned everything he can and he's picked up from Einstein. Like Einstein opened the door of um, quantum, physics. quantum physics 
and he's he's intuiting all of these things, but he needs to actually find a way to articulate it. To and that's what shape. you see happen over the course of the film is you get images of you, we know that it's bomb imagery, but you're looking at mm. somebody that doesn't know what this is. Mm. He's seeing something that the world is now open to, but he yeah. needs to find out if this is a thing that well, really it hasn't exists. concretized yet. It hasn't right. happened yet. Mm. I also think that that opening of the film where he's talking about his youth and his education and meeting Niels Bohr and Heisenberg and so on, that's, that's like a, maybe a 20 or 30 minute montage, effectively, as we're saying, that conveys such a vivid sense of the joy of discovery and of science. But it does much more than that, because I think also it, um, it, it renders uh, knowledge uh, international. It makes uh, interactions with people from different cultures, different political views, yeah, so that are then brought into play at the end, right? Mm. So uh, I think that aspect of it, of the traveling and the studying in different universities and so on, is very important. It also brings up the Jewish question. Yes. Um, so, so the idea that um, many of the scientists, most of the scientists, perhaps I don't know, you know, numbers, but who worked on the Manhattan Project and developing the atomic bomb were um, Jewish and particularly German Jews who were pushed out by um, Hitler essentially and then the film vocalizes quite explicitly the idea that if Hitler hadn't been so virulently anti-semitic and had not forced out uh, these scientists he may well have had a bomb because they would have developed it for him or been made to develop it for him I'm not saying that I think that, I can't remember who it is there was a scientist at least one who I think um, stayed in Germany was made to work on on, on the bomb for the Nazis and um, kind of did things wrong or kept them on the wrong routes. I think the deuterium, you know, heavy water, because it was like he, he knew it wasn't working, but the longer he could keep them on it, the longer he could store them from having a bomb. That, I'm not saying that story's represented here, I'm just saying like they may not have like done it, you know, enthusiastically or whatever, but had they been in Germany, they would not have been in America developing the bomb for the US, they would have been in Germany developing it for Hitler. Mm. Um, and so, and the question of, I suppose, it, I suppose it likely, it brings up that these scientists are Jewish. What else does it do with that, if anything? Does it talk about uh, about problems that that creates? Or because there's no sense of anti-Semitism in the US. They come to the US for an escape of that. Well, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the US, and mm -hmm. particularly in universities. And I think the film does hint at it when he gets that job, where it says, well, it's a dream job or whatever, right? Because of course there were, you know, in quotation marks, but that was the term. There were Jew quotas on all of the uh, 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 Ivy League uh, universities and beyond. So, you know, to get a job like that is one thing. To kind of, you know, give it to a Jewish person is, you know, something else altogether. Which then kind of dramatizes the urgency and so on. And I think the film does have those bits of discussions where people are not wanting to work on that project and it gives them a moral responsibility for it, in which being Jewish is one of them. Mm. Yeah, kind of, you know, the concentration camps yeah, in Europe are why you need to work on mm -hmm. this here now. Which right. seemed to be, it seemed like it came up, again, I, I, I don't hear people talking very much, um, but I see what's going on on their faces. And I think it came up between Oppenheimer and the Josh Hartnett character. It seemed to be uh. um, something that split the two of them, which was that it's as if Oppenheimer had understood the duty to work on this project based on understanding what was happening to Jews in Central Europe. Mm -hmm. And Josh Hartnett didn't seem 
so much on board with it and it it seemed like it, it felt like it had shades of maybe it's just because the two topics came up at around the same time but it felt like that um, well conflict also, between them was something to do with or had shades of anti-semitism yes it. i felt that too and it's partly because of who josh hartnett is and what he represents right yeah. you know this kind of huge wasp you know white Anglo-Saxon yeah and suspicious of potentially communist exactly. as well so so i think the film is, is very good about kind of um connoting all of that yeah yeah sometimes it's sometimes stating explicitly but more often just kind of um connoting it i think and then you cast benny safety who's one of the great jewish writer director actors who he's lovely great to see he's lovely in it sorry who's that benny safety is the oh yes, hungarian yeah, 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 one yeah. Thing. yeah i want to think about uh barbenheimer just a little bit in terms of box office because um this has made according to wikipedia's figure 174 million so far which is you know that's an opening weekend um and barbie same opening weekend 337 million is the figure and you know we've talked on the previous podcast about about how these two films are activating interest in each other because of the incongruity between them you know barbenheimer has its own wikipedia page um and it's completely uh you know uh, coincidental it's all completely it's a crowd thing, you know, people have just decided that this is entertaining to them. But I think it also speaks to the idea that we've talked before about superhero fatigue, and particularly I feel personally since um, that, that first big decade of Marvel finished with Endgame and so many characters left and we've had to create new ones or, or, or bring in new ones, it's been much less interesting. Um, th now, even though these are not original uh, properties exactly. Barbie is obviously based on a toy in this effectively it's an original film though it's based on um, uh, history based on history and specifically based on an auto, uh, on a biography as you said um, I think it's the, the the success that these two are already having points to if you if people are willing to go to cinema we have a cinema packed with people wearing pink for Barbie this you know the IMAX obviously is a very special thing that people will make a particular trip to. We've come down to London for it today, and that was obviously packed out. People will go and see these. There's huge interest. In, people think, oh, no one wants to go to the cinema anymore. They do, but you've got to give them something different. That's what is being offered there, right there, now. There have to be economics or uh, oligopolistic restrictions on the distribution of films, because otherwise it doesn't explain why a place like Cineworld you know, has like X amount of screens devoted to one or two films. And then, you know, they are in fact showing films from India or sometimes from Poland or sometimes from China, but they don't think of, you know, kind of varying their program so that there's an independent film or a foreign film or, right, to, to actually address different audiences that are not foreign audiences, right? So I've seen Cineworld address a Polish audience or a Chinese audience or an Indian audience. Yeah, people who live in Birmingham, but not actually address an art house audience or, you know, kind of an audience that's willing to watch a drama rather than a spectacle or, mm. or different genres or, you know, kind of they seem to devote an enormous amount of their screen time to a couple of films that they think are going to be the big ones. But yeah. it also comes down to what I'm more trying to imply is what is being given to us. What are the biggest movies being given to us for 10 years now? It's been superhero 10 years or more. It's been superheroes. And right now, the two biggest movies are neither of those. They are different. And, and you know, one of them is Nolan. And it's, you know, we've seen Nolan before, but his is always an event. 
and one of them is addressing an audience that never gets addressed in a hundred million dollar movie, Barbie, oh. and people are going to them. Well, people want to I see. I suppose, it. but we're saying the same thing, right? That yeah. there are audiences; they're just not being addressed. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. No. Um, but rather than the indie, it's like if Hollywood goes, oh, the, the big films. Let's now let's make it. Now let's not do a superhero one now. You know. Well, but I also think. <laughs> I mean, when the cineplexes began, and I remember when they began, mm. the whole idea was that you know you now had eleven screens. But the idea wasn't that you would show Superman on eleven screens. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's that you would show eleven different films. Yeah. And some of them would be in a twenty seat cinema, and some of them would be in a eight hundred seat cinema. Mm. Right. But that you would have eleven different films, and actually, I think the distributors have lost sight of that. Mm. Didn't yeah. you say in? Did you go to Argentina? Where did you go in South America? I think that had um, a multiplex theater. You, you, oh yes, yes, that was, was that? that was in Argentina. That was in Buenos Aires, where they had one theater that was actually showing three plays at the same time. And you know they'd be doing Hamlet, and they'd be doing a musical, and they'd be yeah. So they're effectively different screens. That's how the the, the place was laid out. Is that right? Well, there are different theatres, yeah, right, and actually saying. there's a different type of play mm-hmm. in each theatre. That's the way you bring audiences in. Yeah, so that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, and, and actually that's the way that uh, multiplex theatres were designed to be. So that, you know, you would draw different audiences to the same place because you'd be showing different types of films aimed at different audiences. And they've just lost sight of that. So, it's, you know, they always expect the same audience, really, right? Because I, I don't think... Uh, I don't think it's a problem with audiences. I mean, I think there are problems with audiences, right? You now have all of this audiovisual media at your fingertips at home. Mm. But, you know, and just to go back to when we were talking about the IMAX, to me, film is an experience. Going to the movies is an experience. It's not just the story or what it means or whatever. It's actually an experience. And when you go to IMAX, you get a different, a categorically different type of experience mm-hmm. than if you watch it in any other way. Yeah, so to go back uh, to, to, to the films, you know, what would it lose? I think, you know, it's, it's, even, it's not just what it would lose, it's actually a completely different experience. Yeah, so sometimes, like when we were talking about Dunkirk, which we also saw on IMAX, mm-hmm. I just think people weren't talking about the same film I had seen. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, they were talking about it in a different way, and that's because they had seen it in that in that it was it was something different that they'd seen, yeah. and they had a different experience uh, with it. Um, now I forget how that relates to this point about multiplexes, but oh, I can't remember. Just, <laughs> yeah, we're vaguely talking about how cinema is important, so, yeah. and 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 the difference to well, some extent. I think you're talking about the difference between you know watching at home and going to cinema. And one of the things that has that this I think right now is disproving, or at least showing strong evidence against. Is that people just want to stay at home? They don't. They want to go and see something, but they but but give them something that they want to see. Give them something worth seeing. Because my experience of seeing things at Cineworld is, unless you pay the extra amount of money for the IMAX, you're getting worse visual quality than on your television at home. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. be. Yeah. yeah um, sure. You know the projection doesn't have the right wattage. It always looks right. a bit dark and dim, right? Like in 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 you know you have to like pay for IMAX to get like. The same kind mm-hmm. of audiovisual cult. Well, if that's the way they're treating you, they shouldn't be surprised that people aren't going. That's true. The, sin, the major sin I find when we go, our local cinema is a view, is that the second the film is over, they turn all the lights on. Oh, yeah. And it's like, you're not getting us out of here any sooner because it's going to play through the whole of the credits. Huh. <laughs> so maybe it's a health and safety thing. They're terrified somebody's going to trip over. But mm-hmm. we went to see Bo is Afraid. And the credits play out over the last shot. Um, and you couldn't see it. 
right? Because the lights came on before directed by Ari Aster. We've had on. worse experiences. We've had experiences <laughs> where they forgot to turn the lights off and the film has started, yeah. right? Yeah. Or we have experiences where you know it's a foreign film and they have no subtitles, mm -hmm. and you know, twenty minutes into the film, and you have to go tell them that there's no subtitles on screen. I mean, this I is the long-term creeping effect of of getting rid of projectionists. Sure. When Avatar made everyone go digital in two thousand and nine, I think that's when this really kicked in because it became we can have one person running around up top, turning all the films on, and then just not bothering with anything else, and and no one's trained but it, to solve problems properly. It's not just projectionists; it's they're getting rid of staff. Yeah. So yeah. you know, so they you know, you go search for someone to tell them that you know the film isn't working or it's stopped or whatever. And you can't find anyone. And the thing is, you have an impression that there's tons of staff because they're all working the concession or the coffee place next door that isn't even owned by the cinema, right? So there's tons of people working those things, but actually very few people working the cinema itself. Mm. So it's a problem. Yeah. yeah, and you knew somebody was up there in the projection booth today, partly because they had somebody introduce, and I, I forget who it was, but they mentioned by name, the projectionist will be showing you the print, the 70 mil IMAX print of Oppenheimer. And it's yeah. like, good, I'm yeah. glad you... The projectionist's name was Michael. <laughs> said, Michael? Yeah, they, they, he introduced him, it was lovely. And, yeah. it, and it really did reassure you that, you know, you looked after here and so on. Yeah. And it's also about selling, like, this particular cinema. I mean, the guy introducing it said, for one thing, you get the introduction. No one does that. And the second thing is, you're at the biggest screen in the country, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but there's one last thing I wanted to ask, because um, I don't think we've really talked about it, is the imagery of the bomb. I mean, the bomb is key. And they didn't set off a real atomic bomb, but Christopher Nolan is um, judicious in his uh, avoidance of CGI wherever he can. And this was done with, I think, shitloads of TNT. Um, what do we think of that imagery? How did it work? How did it, did it, was it sold? You know, did it work? Yes. I mean, it worked for me anyway. Uh, and it was interesting because it wasn't quite the Hiroshima cloud as you see it in mm -hmm. pictures. And actually, part of the reason it wasn't is because you see it evolving into that, mm. right? And also, obviously, you see it in color. Yeah? So, I mean, to me, I, to, actually, to me, that was one of the least interesting things <laughs> about the film, to be honest, right? You know, because it's almost like he's got to show it to you because you need, you expect to see it and so on. But the powerful things were, you know, when they did the experiment or, you know, kind of the moment that the bomb is dropped and you get it all through, like, sound effects, right? Mm. You know, kind of those things were much more interesting to me than actually seeing the imagery. Yeah, it's, but it's almost like they've got to show it because you know that's. It was more about the light on them, yeah, yeah. rather than rather than showing because yeah, you've seen footage of the Trinity test and it's yeah. like you could have put that in a shot, you could have comped that in and it would have been fine. Yeah. But it was more about this unbelievable blinding light. Yeah, it's now been presented with something which you can't quite understand just how big this is when you set it off. Mm. And it's lovely how that's then used later on in a couple of sequences when like when he's being interrogated particularly cruelly mm. by, what's his name, is it Jason Clark, when they blow the light up in the room mm. and the interrogation carries on. I like that it was about yeah. light more than fire. And when, when everyone's applauding him after they... In fact, this is important, yeah. we should talk about this. Um, they, they drop the bomb on Hiroshima and we don't get close to that. We hear it quietly on the radio that they've done it. Mm. You know, we don't get anywhere near. And that scene that you mentioned about deciding where we're going to drop the bomb, what locations we've got, is, is such an important scene for, for, for the film's perspective because it's a scene about people who are completely removed from the effects of what they're doing, making this 
fairly casual, in fact, extremely casual decision, the guy making the decision or leading the conversation says, oh no, there aren't 12 locations, there are 11 because Kyoto, I've crossed that off because I went on my honeymoon there. I mean, that's, that's you know, maybe that's based on truth or maybe it's just a, an invention for the film, but it's a remarkable thing to, to, to consider that, you know, someone is, is sort of, is thinking about. Um, and so, yeah, but like the, the actual, the actual devastation, the devastation that changes um, or that, that, that invokes all of this guilt in Oppenheimer is, is at such a remove, but it's just the fact that he knows, the fact that he's actually seen the text, he knows, you know, he's seen at that point, the devastation of, what, of, of the power of this thing, that it's something we've never seen before. And then that it's confirmed that, you know, within weeks it's been used um, and countless people have died, tens of thousands. That's a really remarkable use of perspective. I didn't expect it to be quiet. I didn't expect it to be, oh, and this happened, you know? And I think that's kind of interesting. I want to pick up on a, uh, a point of, of Stevens where he was discussing that scene of how the light mm. affects. Because actually, to me, you know, when you were saying that, like, the film doesn't dramatize, to me, that was an example of how the film dramatized, yeah. right? That also, you, you know, you see uh, uh, someone uh, uh, turning back and using the mirror, then you see somebody in the car because they think that the shield is going to protect them. Then you see somebody wearing like uh, face cream with the glasses, right? And this whole this thing, there's so there's all these different ways of protecting yourself against that light, which will work and which will not. I mean, I expected <laughs> the windshield to explode mm -hmm. or something, right? And it didn't. But you know, that is a way of dramatizing, yeah. That it creates this tension of like what's going to happen next, right? Like when when the bomb explodes. Mm. The one thing I just wanted to say about the about the imagery of the bomb, which is why I brought it up, is that um, for as beautiful as that imagery was, and as much as it worked, and I think there's one shot in particular where it kind of fills the screen widthways, um, not just vertically, which is fantastic, which is really effective. It actually made me think of the logo <laughs> for is it Troublemaker Studios, Robert yeah. Rodriguez's, and it's just like that. That's a logo that fills the screen with fire, and obviously it's not doing the same thing here. But it reminds me of it because it's a it's a really Kind of arresting image this whole goes up um the thing is because of what you mentioned stephen that we know the images of the bomb and this doesn't look very much like them um there was something a little lacking there um but what i think the scene did best was extend it in time it took so long for this to happen we spent so long building up to it but this countdown takes forever and then eventually when it happens we spend so long with the sound out and the bright light and the imagery of, of the flames roiling before we get the shockwave and the sound, the sonic mm. boom. And like it, it, and so when that finally comes in, because you know it's going to come in because we've been shown bombs before where we see it first and hear it second. We know it's going to come in and it takes so long to, and when it eventually does, and it is so loud, like that, that is where I think the, the power of, of the test is, is sold, mm. you know? Any last comments, Liam? Um, last frivolous thoughts? I thought it was lovely when you get to the end, knowing that Chris Nolan is a 2001 Space Odyssey fan, did you not think that uh, old Oppenheimer looked so much like old <laughs> Keir DeLay at the end of 2001? Uh, I know it's probably a complete coincidence. I just thought he looks exactly like uh, the old man beyond uh, the infinite. It didn't occur um, to me. I just thought that was. I was. I was surprised thing. there at how realistic he looked. Yeah. And how realistic everyone looked as, as yes. old people, really. Yeah, Maybe with the exception of Benny Safdie. 
I think he didn't quite, he's so vibrant and young. But um, I, I, I thought that Emily Blunt looked fantastic as an older lady. I think mm. she was wonderful, that last unforgiving moment. Yeah. Um, mm. Well, I thought it was a really great film. I recommend that everyone see it on as large a screen as possible. <laughs> Agreed. Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. I think that's all of them. Oh, and Google Podcasts. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter while it lasts. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye bye. <laughs>